local environment heroes saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily Welcome to the Local Environment Heroes podcast, a podcast that brings you a series of chats with some amazing local heroes from here in Canberra and from further afield who are doing ace things for our world. Podcast is produced and supported by the Canberra Environment Centre and your hosts are me, Fiona Vakenen, Director of the CEC and Julie Bolton, a sustainability strategist based here in Canberra. Local environment heroes. Okay, so let's go. Hey, Julie. Hi. So you missed out on a cracker of an episode, Fiona, which was a little bit sad, but that's the way it goes. I did. Tell me all about who you met up with, Julie. So I had a great conversation with Dr. Catherine Trebek, which was very exciting because Catherine and I have um, had the privilege of knowing Catherine now for maybe a year or two. Yeah. Um, she recently, well, not recently now, I think it's been about six or eight months, she moved back to Australia after 17 years living in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, over the past 17, maybe longer than that, 20 years or so, she's become a world expert on well-being economies. Mm. And what what even is the well-being <laughs> economy, Julie? That is the question <laughs> that I think Catherine must get asked about 500 times a day. Yeah. And does she give the answer? She, is this? Okay. So we're does. all about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> she does give the answer because I could try and give you the answer, but I feel that I would mince her words appallingly and then Catherine might no longer be my friend. <laughs> so I think it's better to hear from Catherine because, as I said, she is a world expert. Yeah. She has a great description of a picnic blanket that she mm. will talk about and okay. how there are four corners that All we right. need to focus on. And her whole thing basically is that for a long time now the world has been focused on success in the wrong way and measuring mm. the wrong things and we mm. need to actually broaden out our concept of what a good life is and for her and for a lot of people and for me um, it's all about this concept of well-being and a well-being economy means we're totally transforming the way the way we function because an economy we need an economy that is in service of people and planet not an econ- not not the other way around which is what mm. we see so often now is that people and planet are there to serve the economy and she's like no that mm. absolutely has to change yeah. So to properly care for our environment, it's looking at what Catherine Trebek is all about, that well-being economy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, All right. Well, let's listen. All right. Mm -hmm. Over we go. All right. So I have the lovely Catherine Trebek here. It's very exciting. Hi, Hi, Julie. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me to join this conversation. Very exciting. So our first big question that we ask all all of our people who come on. Has there been a defining moment in your life when you've looked at the world and thought something needs to change now? Do you know, there have been many that have just rein, reinforced. So if we had longer, I could I could talk you through many of them. But one, one that was really key for me was when I moved to Glasgow. Uh, I was living in Australia and then moved to Glasgow in about 2005. Not anything career orientated or sensible, but because I was in love with Scotland. And... It was really staggering to me, the inequalities in this very, very wealthy city. And it's a city that used to brag about being the second biggest city of the British Empire. And now it brags about being Scotland's biggest shopping destination. And that shift has brought about huge disruption to the communities and to the physical realm and the environment. And there is now massive gaps in life expectancy in Glasgow. And so one of the big 
wake-up calls for me of how the current economic system, the economic model of the UK in this case, wasn't working was just starting to see the statistics around gaps in life expectancy and I a few years later I joined Oxfam just as the Haiti earthquake hit and Haiti you know one of the most fragile states in the world their life average life expectancy is 64 in Glasgow there are parts of Glasgow where life expectancy is 54 so that was one of those just whack you in the face realizations of how you can have all this financial wealth but it doesn't automatically translate for good lives for people wow okay so you've you spent 17 years in glasgow was it all in glasgow yeah what did you see over the 17 years Things starting to shift in glasgow and yes i mean scotland's really going on a a journey as, as several other countries are of really questioning what the economy is about and i'm thinking specifically about civil society and businesses and unions but that have has had quite a tangible political impact in that the scottish government has now very specifically said it recognizes the flaws of just measuring through a narrow proxy for success of gross domestic product it's wanting to broaden out definitions of success it has a very explicit commitment to build a well-being economy an economy that serves people and planet Uh, the new first minister has just appointed a cabinet secretary for the well-being economy it's got all sorts of different policy that i'd point to as good examples of what you'd want more of if you see a government committed to transforming the economic ecosystem so for example really key effort to build a more circular production and consumption system so it has an agency called zero waste scotland whose job it is is to sort of really incubate and and support innovation in circular economy production systems it has something called cooperative development scotland where it's really trying to broaden out the number of worker co-ops or community-owned cooperatives in the economy huge support for social enterprises big commitment to gender equality cross-party support for living wages so there's lots of different pieces that i can rattle off doesn't mean it's there yet there's a long long way to go and often those good pieces as you so often see are overwhelmed and contradicted by other other dynamics and other forces and and other decisions but scotland really is going on this journey and i think the health inequalities were a real wake-up call there was a a chief medical officer back in the early sort of 2010s to that sort of period who was very, very good at calling out the social determinants of health and getting wider buy-in for an understanding that it's not about individual lifestyle choices. We need to understand the causes of those causes, as Michael Marmot would say, and understand how it is conditions of housing, the nature of jobs, uh, transport, inequalities, injustices, racism, all of these things matter in impacting people's life expectancy. So that was a huge answer and we're going to go back and no, it was fantastic. But just for the sake of our listeners, you mentioned in their mm-hmm. wellbeing economy and then you've mentioned all of these different examples, mm-hmm. I guess, and different approaches to which I assume are one way of getting to this wellbeing economy. What what is what is this idea behind? Yeah, so economy? I actually I think of the wellbeing economy as a little bit like a picnic blanket term that's really there to sh- showcase the commonality across a whole 
suite of ideas and visions for how our economy could better serve people and planet. So in different localities or different groups of people will really naturally gravitate to different schools of thought, whether that's regenerative economics or donut economics or solidarity economics or degrowth or post-growth or participatory economics or local economics or feminist economics, ecological economics, all these different schools of thought and different visions have at their core a real shared understanding that the economy needs to be in service of people and planet and we need to really question who is the economy serving, what is it about and is it putting too much pressure on the planet and then from those ideas flow a whole lot of different policy suggestions and practice changes and different implications for how we design the economy. So the wellbeing economy is a really broad term designed to be one positive so it's a little bit more um, sort of propositional in a positive way than some of the other terms but also it's about designed to be inclusive and really emphasize that plurality of ideas that are out there and then of course depending on locality or where people have different spheres of influence there's also a whole lot of different shifts that are needed and the good news is that people around the world are piling in on different aspects of those shifts so there's people working on how to change tax systems, there's people working on different business models, there's people working on different ways of producing goods, there's people working on different energy systems, you know, moving to more renewable systems, there's people working on the food system. So there's, there's no shortage of ideas and examples of what change looks like and we're starting to see it emerge. These are the sort of chinks of light uh, that, I, that I talk about in a way that show us that this is not a step into the unknown. So you don't have to be an economist to be involved in this Absolutely discussion. Not. I'm Absolutely totally not. Absolutely not. We need artists. We need designers. We need storytellers. We need engineers. We need sociologists. We need chefs. We need, you know, we need everyone has a role to play in designing and delivering an economic system that's much more in line with what people and planet need. I mean, I really like the whole concept, but this is what I particularly like because I've often found not being an economist, I feel my ability to engage in a discussion about the economy is so incredibly limited because I see it as such a um, singular pursuit, mm. I guess. And it's very much, well, if you're not an economist, you can't, how could you possibly critique what the economy is? But I think what you're saying here is actually the economy is so much bigger than what you mm. what, what we've said. Yeah, I mean, people when they it is when people time. think of the economy, often they think of sort of scary charts on the evening financial news, or they think about men in usually men in suits sitting around boardroom tables making decisions about people's jobs in far off places, or they think about massive Excel spreadsheets, and there's a whole lot of terms and language and jargon that feels very alienating. And, and yet the economy, one, touches all of us in all sorts of different ways through our jobs, whether we can afford things, how we go about our daily life, our, the buildings you know, that we sit in and live in and work in. Is there a park or a car park available to us? All those actually are how we design 
our economic choices uh, influence those decisions. And also everyone is part of the economy too, whether you're working in a more paid sense or whether you're part of the care economy or whether you're part of supporting nature. So everyone is part of the economy and everyone is influenced by the economy. And there's a sort of the original meaning of the term economy is around household management. And so if we take that idea of, well, what's our house, our planetary home, it brings us to a beautiful conversation around how do we how do we take care of our planetary home and how do we make sure that everyone who's in this home who's in this house has enough uh, there's also a real irony that you know the economists over the previous centuries had real science envy and they wanted to be a hard science like physics and yet we've got this irony now that almost the a very narrow type of very influential economic thinking is almost ignoring the science around environmental crisis. Uh, and I think that's a really yeah, sad state of affairs. And of course, there are a whole many more economists, ecological economists and feminist economists and so on, who have, who have absolutely been warning that we can't, can't have the economy trump science and we can't have the economy ignore planetary limits. But it is a real irony, I think, in the history of economics that it started off with this science envy and now it's almost ignoring the science. So how does this relate to the fact that on the news every night we are always presented with the facts or the, the figures on GDP? And that seems to be, so we've got mm. GDP, this is what we're talking about, and that's that seems to be the pivotal measure mm. that everyone wants to talk about in relation to the economy. How does how does this conversation change? Yes, so, so gross domestic product was invented about 90 years ago uh, in the sort of period of the Great Depression at a time where we weren't as cognizant of planetary boundaries and we were sort of really thinking that, you know, we had to, economies like the US where GDP came from had to grow its way out of the Great Depression and, and probably quite rightly so at that, that time. I feel a little bit sorry for GDP in a way because I think it has been pushed beyond all that it was ever intended or set up to do. It's kind of... The, it, I have this image in my mind of a little bit like a shoe, and if you you know if you put a foot that's way too big in a in a shoe, the shoe will start to break and the, you know bust out of its its space. And I think that's what's happened with GDP. It was never designed to be a proxy, as its inventor Simon Kuznets says, for the welfare of a nation, and yet through things like international accounting standards, through the way governments design their internal financial rules, and also how the idea, even in our mindsets of success, has become come to be equated as having more and more and more. No matter what it is, whether you needed it or not, no matter you know what the impact of the environment of having more, there's almost become this this idea that's become quite deep seated that we need more of anything, and therefore you can measure that through gross domestic product, which measures the market price of production. And, and that has become equated with success of a country. And you see, when you think about what's a developed country, often people are meaning developed in how big's the GDP of that country, you know, the international league tables. So when you look around the world through GDP glasses, you see countries like the US, China, India, Canada, you know, the G7 is a good example of that. You know, the entry ticket to that club is how big's your GDP. You take those glasses off, and you see, actually, those countries have got huge problems. I mean, to give you an example, a country like the US, huge GDP per capita, has the same life expectancy as a country like Costa Rica. And 
And, you know, as I was talking about in Glasgow, the UK, huge GDP, and yet there are parts of the UK where life expectancy is stalling. And so you, when you look, un, you look underneath those figures and you see very, very real social um, and environmental problems, but also you don't, if you have just these GDP glasses on, you don't see incredible work. And to come back to the you know Costa Rica example, it's a GDP terms, it's a sort of roughly middle income country, and yet very high level of, of life expectancy, pretty good health, incredible levels of education. Um, it's been so successful over the last few decades in terms of reforesting its landscape, bringing back biodiversity. Uh, it's really pushing the renewable energy agenda, very, very democratic government. And so there's lots to learn from countries that you don't see when you've got your GDP glasses on, but you take them off. Suddenly there's a whole lot of different heroes out there that we can learn from. So you've just come back to Australia after 17 mm -hmm. years away. Is this a discussion that you're seeing happening in Australia? Is this something that we can start where we yeah. is on the table for discussion? Tentatively. And I hear I hear a lot of civil society organizations talking about how can how can we better meet needs of people and planet? I think it's often though issue by issue and not really looking up upstream enough. So there's all sorts of various re reasons for that that maybe it's time for another conversation. I see a lot of enterprises and businesses that are recognising that business as usual can't carry on and they are rolling up their sleeves and starting to figure out how can they be part of something more positive and use commercial viability and profit making not as a goal in its own right but to deliver social and environmental benefits. And I see in government, um, whether that's at the state, state level and here in, here in Canberra in the ACT, of course, they have a wellbeing framework and they're starting to implement those ideas and those goals through wellbeing impact assessments. You hear at the federal level, uh, the treasurer is talking about measuring what matters and starting to develop a wider dashboard of goals and metrics that give, hopefully, will give us a, a richer sense of the state of play of Australian society and which groups are, are faring well and which groups aren't. The trick will be, of course, to make those measures matter and utilise that for more upstream analysis so we don't have governments constantly spending money downstream, putting band-aids on the problems, but actually starting to take action at the root, root causes. So I think the conversation is happening. It does feel still quite far behind what I was used to in, in, in the UK and particularly in Europe and just last week in the European union right at the heart of the european commission there was a massive conference on beyond growth it was addressed by the president ursula van der leyen over 2,000 people in person and many more thousands online were really looking at what is the, the purpose of of growth and what are the ways that we can move beyond growth and have an economy that's not dependent on growth and particularly in places like the the eu growth's really hard to come by there's this really challenging phenomenon of secular stagnation so whether you like it or not the post-growth world is here how do we manage that and take care of people and provide for each other so so these conversations are i'd say much more prevalent uh in in the uk and and europe they're not mainstream yet by any means but you can you can sort of float these ideas without getting the emotional reaction that I sometimes encounter here. Oh, you can't talk about beyond growth. Of course we need growth is sort of the reaction that you tend to get here. Yeah, it is quite phenomenal that this discussion has been really put centre stage and, and people are starting to say we might look back at this conference that's just happened as a real landmark turning point in the discussion around the economy. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the book that you wrote and your analogy with a plane? Like this, this book, this analogy has just totally always stuck with me. The plane. Not mine. Um, it's a rostroids of, of, you know, you have the, the plane taking off and then sort of cruising at a, at a, at a sort of, you know, a, a, a certain height and then what happens does it ever land so but the book was is called the economics of arrival ideas for a, a grown-up economy and and my co-author jeremy williams and i we really just explored this idea that may what if we dared to ask has the project of economic growth done its job in places like the UK, Australia, the US, Canada, France, Germany, and so on. You know, could we dare to ask, is there a destination for this idea of development? Uh, and, and that often is, seems quite a heretical question to ask. You, you know, you get a lot of sort of people sit back in their chair and they sort of maybe cross their arms or they big intake of breath because it's, it's almost like a forbidden question to say, well, has, has growth done its job? And yet when you look at the extent of wealth and resources that these GDP-rich countries have got, and you look at the extent to which they are spending a lot of money dealing with the collateral damage of their economic model, and we can talk about that later, and the extent to which economic growth is no longer translating for good lives for enough people, you have to think, well, maybe we should be asking this question. And then, of course, there's a second part of our, our idea. So we floated the idea, you know, what about if we said the, these countries have arrived, they've got enough wealth and resources, but that, of course, doesn't mean having that in aggregate doesn't mean that everyone's taken care of. So there's a, very much a, a dual idea in the book of arrival and then also this idea of making ourselves at home. And, and so then the sort of second part is, well, how do we take care of everyone? And going back to that original meaning of, of economics, how do we make sure everyone has enough? So that has to be a conversation about cherishing and sharing the wealth and resources that the growth project has generated. So it's a bit like, say, if you're if you're going to um, on a holiday to the coast, for example, you get there, you don't keep driving, <laughs> you, you get there, you say, right, we've got to our destination, this is brilliant, and then you get out and you make sure everyone's got their bed and you make lunch for people and, and maybe if something's broken, you fix it. So this is about improvement, it's about taking care of everyone, it's about cherishing what we've got rather than being constantly, constantly fighting for more and more and more because we're seeing every day the damage that that's bringing to people and planet. Let's talk about the planet. How does a wellbeing economy, how will it improve or what does it do to for the environmental credentials, for the environmental change that we need to yeah. have happen? So at a at most basic level, I mean, inherent in the idea of a wellbeing economy is ecological wellbeing and wellbeing of future generations, but very much seeing the environment as an audience and as a goal in its own right and protecting and cherishing and nurturing our precious ecosystems is inherently part. So it's not just human well-being today it's very much about ecological well-being today tomorrow and in, into the future for its own sake and so you'd want to pursue human well-being within the context of respecting and planetary limits so that's that's a very important boundary on the pursuit of human well-being is understanding the planetary's limits and, and nurturing the planet the planet accordingly and then when it comes to practices i'm, I'm really inspired by practices in the collaborative economy uh, the sharing economy 
economy and and also the circular economy that have at their at their deepest sort of mindset a very different approach to the economy not see not to the environment not seeing the environment as something we, we can just take from and then throw our waste back into but actually really saying the environment is precious in its own right and we need to share and cherish it and lighten our, our footprint on the on the planet so there's some really good examples i think really agroecology different you know ways we're generating different farming practices or other other examples as well but also thinking about how much stuff do we need could we meet our needs for fun our needs for social belonging our needs for shelter through different ways that don't require just more consumption or building more and more stuff so really rethinking how we deliver on our basic needs in different ways to that in the past have just put huge pressure on our planet and we're seeing the examples of mother nature hemorrhaging under that pressure we're seeing that every day in our news headlines and out our windows can you apply a well-being economy at any scale like could i sit here today and say i am going to now make sure my whole family abides by well-being economy principles and if so how do you start what do you yeah do? and i think i think it'd be brilliant i think everyone has a role to play here i think we need change right at the very 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 local individual level right community level right up to our big supranational international institutions and goals and decision making processes so change is required at all levels and so if people are starting to think about well what can they do well think about their spheres of influence what steps they can take and i will say that i think we don't want to put too much pressure on individuals because they're currently they're still existing in the current paradigm so it's really hard within that when all the sort of forces and physical infrastructure pushes us in a, in a certain way so i don't want people to sort of over over pressure themselves but if if you're lucky enough to be able to make choices around for example how you shop where you shop how you get your fruit and veg how energy efficient and insulated your homes are how you get to work how you get to the the footy pitch on the weekend can you cycle can you use public transport more can you walk how you spend your time as well is it in a community garden or in a choir or is it out consuming different people will have different choices that they're able able to make and i think the big thing is just to stop and think and and really take one step at a time and different actions and because everyone taking one action will highly likely inspire someone else as well the more people doing this the more easy we make it one example since i've come back to australia i've been struck by the number of solar panels on roofs around australia when i left in 2005 hardly any buildings had solar panels and people say oh they're so ugly and yet now they're the new normal you know apparently almost one in three australian rooftops have solar panels and so it, that shows how things become acceptable the more and more people utilize them uh, and we can change people's perceptions of of what what's desirable even uh, and what's beneficial Rosie said in the beginning of that answer there's there's only so much i guess individuals can do because that we need a whole paradigm shift how do we get that how do we get that larger system shift to happen like how can we get mm-hmm. the government federal state local to go yeah actually this is so julius is one of my favorite questions around how how change happens and so we could talk for ages about this because i know you're really thoughtful and and deep thinker on how change happens as well but to to be really brief about it i think there are three things that really matter 
pioneers, policies and perceptions. So pioneers, I'm talking here about the leading actors who are innovating and pushing the edge of the envelope out and really building the change we need to see in the here and now. So these are the practitioners who are building circular economy businesses or setting up community gardens or tool libraries or who are really just starting to, in their different ways, show us what a different way of approaching the environment and approaching the economy looks like. And there are a huge number of examples from really tiny, sweet ones right up to to big organisations and big businesses. And we need to be inspired by those pioneers, support them, incubate them, tell everyone about them so that others others come to replicate them. And then policies, this is the, the rules of the game. And so the more pioneers we have, the more policy makers will feel that making changes in alignment with what people on planet need is not a step into the unknown. They'll hear the agitation coming up from citizens. They'll hear that this is what citizens want. They'll start to have that voice hopefully start to overwhelm the very shouty, very powerful voices of vested interests who are very powerful in digging in and preserving the current system. So we need to support policymakers within government who are really recognising that business as usual can't carry on. And a good example of that is the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership. So Scotland, New Zealand, Iceland, Finland, Wales and Canada, these governments are just sharing, learning from each other about how to put collective wellbeing at the heart of policy making. And then the other one is perceptions. You know, how do we think about the economy? How do we ask the sort of questions that you've been asking at the very beginning? What is the economy? Can we dare to change it? Can we dare to ask harder questions about the role of, of growth, what do we want to grow, what do we want more of, and actually, if we're really honest, what do we need to power down because it's not aligned with what people and planet need? Can we dare to ask, does development have a destination? Could we dare to ask why are we seeing governments spend so much money on downstream, fix, repair, heal, ameliorative action after things have been broken, couldn't we be more ambitious and and look upstream? So pioneers, policies and perceptions, I think, are the three realms of really where change needs to happen. And where are you in that? So I will put my hands up and say I don't see myself at all as a pioneer. Um, I talk a lot about and I hope try to help audiences think differently about their perceptions of the economy. And when I can, I try to work with policymakers as well to show them what other governments are doing to, you know, really demonstrate that they can be on the right side of history and help them think through what sort of policy shifts we need. I'm not a detailed policy analysis analyst. I'm more at that big picture point of trying to help shape conversations of what's possible. Uh, and then other experts will come in and pile in on the detail with their, with their deeper expertise. Amazing. Awesome. Well, we're going to go to the five, the five hero questions. So congratulations, Catherine, you've just been elected president of the world. How terrifying. Do people really want this job? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, but you have, you've got the job. Um, What's the one change you try to implement? This is one of my least favorite questions because as you've probably heard, I think there are thousands and thousands of changes we need, but they, they will all be easier if we change our perception about the economy. So I think one of the first things I'd do was be 
send my colleagues in government out to do some reading around, read ecological economics, read some feminist economics, read First Nations wisdom, read, you know, have a look at the videos from the Beyond Growth Conference. You know, I, I just want people to sort of immerse their heads in new ways of thinking about the economy to try to dislodge the microchip that often people in government have you know, had put in and reinforced through training and incentive systems and structures of government to just try to take a different perspective about the role of the economy and what it needs to do and deliver and how. Awesome. It's 2030, mm-hmm. seven years' time. Describe the world that you see around you. So you won't be surprised perhaps to hear me say, I think one of the things we'll see a lot more of is girls riding their bikes to school in all sorts of different cities. And I I have this dream that maybe we'll have local mayors going to elections saying under their watch, more girls will ride their bikes to school. Because if that number is going up, we can see and know that there will be healthy streets, that parents have enough money to afford bicycles. They can afford breakfast for their daughters. Globally, girls going to school is a really important indicator of a whole lot of other you know gender equality aspects but also local services you know schools nearby uh, is really important streets not being being polluted so we'll ha- start to understand you know what are the real measures of progress uh, that reflect the sort of communities that we want to live in the sort of country we want to be i think we'll have many more worker cooperatives and community co-ops and social enterprises and b corps and economically sort of for the common good businesses and so on making up our economic ecosystem System. They won't will no longer be the exception that proves the rule. They will be the, the natural way of doing business. And I think in terms of when it comes to government and how you know the media interviews politicians, there'll be this better understanding of means and ends, and we will be fair weather friends of economic growth, asking what sort of growth do we need of where and how, rather than the ever faithful followers of economic growth. So we'll really be thinking about the composition and the direction of growth rather than just the quarterly rate of GDP growth and its speed of growth. Fantastic. Who are your environmental heroes? So I have loads and many of them are, are First Nations communities who are just being naturally, in, you know, for millennia, just cherishing the environment for its own sake and its sake, of, you know, for its, its role as kin. I also am so in awe of the incredible environmental activists who put their lives on the line and often in very, very dangerous risk to themselves around the world. We see, you know, a lot of environmental activists globally, their lives are at risk and they've been incredible, you know, horrible, horrible murders. So I, I'm in awe of people who do, who just, put, you know, really stand up at all costs for, for the environment. Also in awe of people who are using the court systems. And this is, I think, a really growing area of practice. We're seeing young people here in Australia and in the US and in Europe and in other localities utilise the legal system to put the environment up to the forefront of decision making and we see the impact of that with say the International Criminal Court now talking about uh, the environment crimes against the environment being a crime against humanity the rise of the ecocide agenda but in terms of specific heroes so all of those folks I'm I'm in awe of and and just deeply admire and respect 
and then it's also business people who us who are in business to to deliver things in an environmentally sustainable way and one I often talk about is a guy who ran a brewing company just outside Glasgow where I used to live and he instead of keeping his beer cans together with those plastic rings he was developing something made out of prawn shells he had a line of beer made out of old bread from a nearby bakery that would always have some surplus because they could never predict how much they were going to have. So he'd made a line of beer out of this. He was trying to capture the carbon dioxide um, from his brewing company. His tap room, gorgeous, cosy tap room, was all made out of old pallets. So this beautiful guy, Mike Hazel, um, would be one of my environmental heroes, as would here in Canberra, organisations like the Food Co-op, who I think are just embodying the sort of enterprise that we need more of because it is all about treading lightly on the planet but also taking care of each other so anyone behind the food co-op would also be be my hero yeah we love the food co-op um okay what's your hot tip for being more environmentally friendly and or so one to recognize that everyone will have different choices they can they can make and for me I don't have kids. I've got a bit, I guess, time on, on the weekends. And so I, I love um, when I need something and always questioning, do I actually need it? But when I need something new, nine times out of 10, trying to get it secondhand. So the earrings I'm wearing, the desk, this laptop is on, the light that, that I have on here, all of that is secondhand from Green Shed or from the Salvos or from Buy Nothing groups. And so I think yeah, questioning what do we need? But if we, if we, you know, I need a desk, I need a light for my desk, I need top to wear. Uh, yeah, can we get that secondhand? And so we're just making the most of the fact that Mother Nature has given us resources that have gone into the desk, the top, the light, and we're making the most of them by utilising them as absolutely, you know, to the best and the maximum that we can. And then what's your final slogan or quote or mantra that, that Catherine Trebek So inspired? my one is channel your inner three-year-old. Uh, so everyone who knows a three-year-old will know that they can go through this annoying stage where they're often asking why, why, why? And I think we need to be like that. I think we need to channel our inner three-year-old and stop working symptom by symptom but ask why are there more people sleeping rough in the doorways of our cities? Why is there an epidemic of loneliness amongst our young people? Why is it that we are seeing more and more floods and extreme weather events? And you know, last summer, Europe under a huge heat wave. Towards the end of last year, Pakistan, a third of Pakistan underwater, places in Australia underwater. I was just in New Zealand a fortnight ago. Auckland was having its third civil emergency because of extreme weather. That's never happened before. So we need to stop and ask but why? And keep asking why until we get to the root causes of those challenges and take action there at the source of the problem. Amazing. Thank you so much Such for your pleasure. time. That was Such a pleasure, Local Environment Heroes is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra area. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and we recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and communities. Subscribe to the Local Environment Heroes podcast wherever you find your podcasts and keep in touch. Sign up to the CEC newsletter, check out the CEC website, canberraenvironment.org. Thanks for listening.